Well, good morning. Glad you guys could be here on a dreary Sunday morning. <laughs> it's starting to get uh, kind of wintry, right? If the temperature would just drop a little more. So if you would, just keep your finger there in Luke 20, and that's our text for this morning. Uh, but first, I'll pray. <clears throat> Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and proclaim to all the people the good news of his salvation, that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Now, how many of you have been in a conversation or, uh, or you've made this argument or a statement? Perhaps it was about the scriptures. It might have been something else, maybe political. And the person listening to you took that argument, disagreed with it, and then pushed it to an extreme. Or quite possibly you have done this yourself. I myself included. Oftentimes, and my kids aren't here, but oftentimes children hear this type of argument from their parents. That teenager goes along with the crowd in high school and ends up getting suspended because of a senior prank or something to that effect. Right? Or you skipped the last 20 minutes of Spanish class and got suspend, got detention for it. <laughs> so the next day, as he or she tries to explain what has happened, their parents shuts down the conversation by saying, if everyone else jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? I believe that was said to me multiple times as a kid, and I think that I've... <laughs> I do. <laughs> and I have made that same case uh, with my kids as well, Right? Maybe some of you have done that. Well, this type of argument, this type of of device, it's called a reductio ad absurdum. Or, that's just a fancy way to say a reduction to absurdity. So basically, in this type of argument, you take an idea or a statement and take it to the extreme end in order to prove that the idea is absurd. Now, this type of thing happens all the time, again, in religious and political conversations. When people disagree or do not believe in something, then it is easy to ridicule it. This is what we see in today's text in Luke. But before we jump into that text, it's important that we get this this backdrop of this exchange between Jesus and this other religious group of his day called the Sadducees. Now, we're in the last week of Christ's life, and so we have seen so far this triumphal entry into Jerusalem where he's receiving praise from the crowds of people. We've seen Jesus cleanse the temple and restore honor back to the name of God. And lastly, we now see have seen uh, Jesus teaching in the temple and preaching the gospel to people around him. Now, in this uh, exchange, then, Jesus has interacted with the crowd and the scribes and the chief priests. And this is where we are today, as Jesus is still in the temple and he's interacting with the people and religious leaders. This morning in our text, we will see Jesus get questioned regarding the resurrection from a group known as the Sadducees. And we'll get into that here a little bit more. So let's look at verses 27 through 33. And we're going to take just two big chunks, and we're just going to break it down that way. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? 
for the seven had her as wife. So here, this is this religious group of leaders in Jesus' day that are approaching him with a question in order to try to trick him, right? They wanted to trap Jesus. Most of the time when these religious leaders presented Jesus with a question, it was in order to try to trap him, get him to say something that, you know, would, would be tricking, right? That they would have a charge against him. But who are these religious leaders, the Sadducees? I think it's important to note that Luke describes them as those that do not believe the resurrection. Right? They don't believe it to be true. He says that the Sadducees deny that there is a resurrection. And Luke makes this abundantly clear if you look at Acts 23, 6-8, which you don't have to turn there. When Paul is before the council, he says that he perceived that there was one part Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees. So he launches this theological grenade, right? He, by appealing to the Pharisees because he was one. He stated that he too believed in the resurrection, and this caused a dissension between the council that he was before. It drew, it, it drew this, this, uh, dissension between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, right? There were one part Pharisees, one part Sadducees, and it drew this dissension between the two parties. And Paul was able to be removed from before the council and brought to the barracks. Right, just chuck a theological grenade and just let them argue and you you know you can go back and hang out in your cell, right? But see, there's more to the Sadducees that I believe we need, uh, that, that is actually helpful to know and to understand. Again, two main religious groups in Christ's time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and these two groups were vastly different. The Pharisees wanted to overthrow their Roman oppressors and the Sadducees wanted to cooperate with the Romans in order to preserve their political power. But they come together here to conspire against Christ because both parties realized that the message Christ preached was dangerous to their ideologies. Now, the Sadducees were the party of privilege. They were the ruling elite of that time. Their priests held the majority of the 71-member Sanhedrin, which was the highest court of justice in Jerusalem. And by tradition, one of their members held the office of high priest. They also uh, were in control of the temple. And we see an altercation between Christ and them in 1945 through 48, where Jesus cleanses the temple. They're basically the ones over in, in charge of the money, the money changing and the um, selling of the animals so they could be sacrificed. See, these members, these, these men were wealthy members of the upper class to which uh, Kent Hughes commented and said he described them as the philosophical materialists. They lived for the present rather than for eternity. We would probably understand this today as YOLO. You only live once, so you know do whatever makes you feel good, right? <clears throat> One other thing to mention about the Pharisees and Sadducees was their acceptance of what we call the Old Testament. The Pharisees accepted the whole of the Old Testament, so you would see the books of Moses... You would see, so that would be the law, the prophets, the writings, the pro, um, I said the prophets, in the historical books. Whereas the Sadducees clung to what we know as the Torah, the five, book, five first five books of the Bible, if I could spit it out today. These books were written by Moses, and they're simply called the Law of Moses. And they had a strict interpretation of it. And this led to their claims that there was no reference to the resurrection in it. So this is why we see them confront Jesus with a question regarding a law from the book of Deuteronomy, known as Levi-Rite marriage. It is 
found in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. If you're taking notes, you want to write that down and look down it later, and I will paraphrase a little bit of what, what is taking place in that law. It simply states that if a man has a wife and dies before he has a son born to him and has a brother, then it is the brother's duty to produce a son with her. This is simply meant to prevent a man's name and family from dying out. If the brother failed to do so, and this is probably the most interesting part, if he failed to do so, then the woman was to consult with the elders and bring him before the elders. And if he still refused, then the woman would remove his sandal and spit on him. That's pretty crazy, right? But the real point is that the family name would be carried on. And now this is where we get into the real pickle. Right? In verses 29 through 33, where the Sadducees take this law to its extreme end to try to disprove the concept of the resurrection. Look at it again. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, died without children, and the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. I remember earlier when I talked about reduction to absurdity. This is precisely what the Sadducees were employing here in their hypothetical question to Jesus. They took a good biblical law to an absurd extreme. One bride for seven brothers. So the very absurdity of the situation was an attempt to prove a point. So they're in a sense saying, if there is a resurrection, what then is God going to do about the law of Moses? So this really wasn't a question at all, as the Sadducees were just trying to score some theological point. Much like some of our conversations go today regarding religious beliefs. Like prayer, for instance, or, or anything of that matter. When a tragedy strikes, we tend to say our thoughts and prayers are with such and such a person, with a country, a state, and we get some backlash, right? Now, most of the time this is you know online because we have a lot of keyboard warriors in this day and age. But you get the picture, right? People who disagree with such ideas tend to say something to this effect. Well, why don't you just send your thoughts and prayers? You see how it helped out in this situation, in this tragedy, in this school shooting. While you're at it, why don't you pray for me to win a billion dollars? <laughs> And don't forget the starving kids in India. After all, prayer worked for my mom when she died of cancer. You just go ahead and keep sending your thoughts and your prayers. You see how they take prayer, something to disagree with, and just push it to an absurd end, right? Yes, we are to pray for those things. But many people want to take things to an end because they disagree with it and attempt to make you look foolish. See, this was just a bad question altogether, as it used a biblical premise in order to advance an unbiblical conclusion. Just because someone starts with a Bible verse does not necessarily mean that they understood what the Bible really says. They can use the Bible and still be unbiblical. We see this today, right? In fact, this question and their understanding of Deuteronomy 25 was so bad that Matthew and Mark, who also recorded this in their Gospels, recorded that Jesus harshly rebuked the Sadducees by stating that they were wrong (laughs) because they knew not the Scriptures nor the power of God. It's kind of hard to tell someone they're wrong today, right? 
You're just being unloving. Imagine if Jesus were alive today and told these Pharisees and Sadducees that they were wrong. How many people would probably stand up and tell them, well, Jesus, you're just being mean and hateful and rude. But as bad as this question was, it still needed to be answered. Because the Sadducees were asking something about something that strikes at the very heart of the gospel. That something is the resurrection. That because the gospel is the Christ plus, uh, is the cross plus the empty tomb, the resurrection and the, and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. See, by dying in our place on the cross, Jesus suffered the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And by raising from the dead, Jesus broke the power of death so that we can live forever with God. If there is no resurrection, then there is no good news. And if there is no good news, then there is no way to heaven. And we should just all live according to how we see fit. It won't matter. YOLO, right? You only live once, in case you guys didn't know that one. <laughs> Alright, so look at me with, uh, look at me with, with me at verses 34 uh, through 40, and we will see how Jesus uses the same author, Moses, to prove that the resurrection is a concept that is not foreign to the Torah, or the first five book, books of Moses. So Jesus responds here to the question and proves the resurrection. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more. Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. They no longer dared to ask him any question. So Jesus' answer here in verse 34 is pretty uh, dismissive. He began his answer by drawing a distinction between the present age and the age to come. See, the sons of this age are people who are alive today. Anyone who lives from now until the day of judgment. And it's pretty characteristic then of those that live in this present age for them to get married. However, this is not ultimately what Jesus is saying. It's not his point to talk about marriage or what it is or what it isn't. He was saying that in the age to come, no one would marry or be given in marriage. He makes that distinction very clear. There would be no use for marriage. There would be no use for marriage on the earth. Because it's twofold here, right? Marriage is for procreation as illustrated with the law of Moses. So for the continuance of family name and the expansion of kingdom, be fruitful and multiply, right? And it was for companionship. It's not good for man to be alone. Also, marriage then was a picture of the gospel, as the church is the bride of Christ, and that is what we shall be when we see our groom, right? We'll be his bride. So this response then from Jesus elicits some truths for us to grasp onto. Number one, there is no marriage in heaven. That's the first truth. Second truth is not all will go to heaven. This is a truth about merit, which then raises an important question then. What must I do to be considered worthy? 
<clears throat> the short answer of this is nothing. But Jesus doesn't answer this directly. However, the word that here is, is used that means to be, uh, it means to be counted worthy or to be made worthy. See, worthiness then is not something uh, to be counted, right? Well, let me back up here. Worthiness then is not something that we do. It's not something that, it's something that's done to us. We are made worthy. We're made worthy by what Christ did on the cross for us. So this life that we now live is not merit-driven, it's grace-driven. You've heard it said before, grace-driven effort. We give grace-driven effort when our hearts change and we want to follow the law. We want to do what pleases the Lord. Not because it grants us anything, but because of our love for Him, our affections have been changed Thirdly, when we, when God raises us from the dead, we will never die again. People who are counted worthy or made worthy of the resurrection cannot die anymore. Their existence is everlasting. This seems to be the main point of comparison that Jesus makes here with the angels. When we are raised from the dead, we will be equal to the angels. Verse 36. This does not mean that we will become angels, even though there is a popular notion that when we die or a loved one dies, people say this. We don't become angels. God bless Grandma. She's now an angel watching over me. This is not what Scripture is saying. It's not what Scripture teaches. They'll be equal to angels if they're counted worthy. So then what does Jesus mean when He says that we're equal to angels? There are multiple comparisons that can be made in Scripture, But for instance, the angels were made for the glory of God, and so are we. We're made to give God glory. That's what the angels did. We see that. You hear that in the communion liturgy as well. We join our voices with the angels as we sing that hymn. Angels worship God, and so do we, if we know the living God. Unfallen angels never sin, and neither will we when we finally reach the glories of heaven. Angels never get married, and neither will we, because we are Christ's bride. And once again, there will be no need for marriage, right? (laughs) Lastly, as stated before, angels cannot die, and neither will we when God raises us from the dead. The fourth truth here that is taught, then, is that God will raise us up to be His children, the children of resurrection, sons of the resurrection, sons and daughters of the resurrection. God has considered us worthy to be sons and daughters of God. He has made us worthy. There's nothing that we did on our own to be born in that manner, to be loved by God. So this is a deep truth about our salvation. We are sons and daughters of God, and the life of resurrection is something that we share in as children of God. God will not leave His sons and daughters in the grave, but will raise them them up and bring them home to be with Him forever. What a beautiful truth that is, right? Now quickly, let's look at verses 37 through 38 as we draw to a close. In these two scriptures, we see that Jesus finally gets to His response, right? He's finally going to answer uh, this this concept of no resurrection in in uh, in the law of Moses. 
he gets to his point when he tells the Sadducees that they neither know the Scriptures or the power of God. So Jesus knows that the Sadducees would not accept any other Scriptures. He could have pointed to multiple different places within the Old Testament to prove this concept of resurrection. But he knew the Sadducees wouldn't accept that. He knew that he had to go right to the same place that they were quoting from, the Law of Moses. So he uses those writings to prove there is a resurrection. And at first glance, this scripture kind of seems obscure, but when I think when you understand this very last line of what Jesus says, it makes sense. And ultimately, the scribes answer him and say that he has spoken well. He said, but the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the bush. That's Exodus 3.6, Moses in the burning bush. <clears throat> he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. This is a very persuasive way for Jesus to answer or to make this his argument. The Sadducees, again, prided themselves on following the Torah, the first five books. And they were convinced that it had nothing to say about the resurrection. But here Jesus is proving the resurrection by quoting the words of Moses himself. Ultimately, this shows how, how well Jesus knew his Bible. I mean, he was the Word, right? <laughs> he was there. And also how much confidence he had in the truth of what it says. God identified himself to Moses as the God of the covenant. The God who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the way he addressed them was significant. God spoke in the present tense. He did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Present tense. He was telling Moses that he is the living God, and therefore he is able to save his people. He used this present tense because these men are in with God, worshiping God at this very time and very moment. And he makes that distinction with the Sadducees. See, this, this should have flicked something in the Sadducees' mind. This should have flicked a switch. It should have given them hope that this world is not all there is. We don't have to live YOLO, right? We don't have to live once. We get to live twice. If the Lord has saved us and redeemed us. See, this world with its pains, its hurts, its sorrows, its tears, and its diseases, this is not all there is. Right? We have hope. So since the, the, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, then they lived for themselves. They lived for the money. They lived for the power and the fame. Because that's all there was to them. There was nothing more. But we as children of God, our hope lies elsewhere. It lies in the hope of the resurrection. If there wasn't a resurrection, then our faith would be baseless and meaningless. We'd have no hope. See, so the resurrection, it brings us hope, knowing it, that this life is not all that there is. If God is the God of the living and not the dead, He is the God who raises the dead. Therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living with Him and for Him right now, and they will keep living for Him forever. Therefore, everyone who comes to God through faith in Jesus Christ has this same resurrection life. 
We will be raised from the dead by the power of the living God so that we can glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It all depends on the resurrection, which is essential to the whole relationship that God has with His people. He is not our God unless He is able to raise us from the dead and establish a relationship with us that will last for all eternity. For the proof of that resurrection, you can go back to Exodus and read what God said to Moses. Or else you can go and look at the empty tomb where God raised Jesus from the dead. Our God is the God of the living, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Moses. He is the God of all people we love who have gone ahead of us into eternity, into His glory. But most of all, He is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, who on the third day was raised to everlasting life by the resurrection power of God. And one day, we too will see our risen Savior in the promised land of His glory. What a glorious day that will be, right? When we all see Jesus, our risen Savior. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray.